This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And last year's decision by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull to reject the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the Referendum Council's recommendation for an Indigenous voice to Parliament still stings. Many, including our next guest, Shireen Morris, thought this was the best chance yet to address the legacy of Australia's colonial history. Shireen's a constitutional lawyer and advocate from Melbourne. She has a Fijian Indian heritage and worked for years with uh, Noel Pearson's Cape York Institute, where she was an active player in the many different approaches to achieving constitutional change to remove those race provisions and ensure that the document reflects the unceded sovereignty of Indigenous people. Shireen's written a book called Radical Heart, Three Stories Make Us One, about her work in this area and it's really great to have you in at Triple R. Thanks for coming in. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And we hear a lot about this issue from prominent leaders including Noel Pearson, Marcia Langton, Megan Davis, um, now Senator Patrick Dodd and others, uh, but not so often from people such as you who've worked somewhat behind the scenes in this area. How did you originally become involved? Oh, I had a very interesting career journey into it. I, I actually strangely spent my 20s as an actor and a singer um, in the UK and then in, in Melbourne doing lots of Shakespeare in the Botanic Gardens and songwriting and singing in cover bands. And I, at around 28 years old, I thought, oh, I think I want to do something different. So I went to Monash and studied law. And there's this great program that sends volunteer interns up to native title bodies around the country called the Aurora Internship Program. So I did that and I'd been reading a bit of Noel Pearson's work and and found his kind of philosophies around the right to take responsibility um, really inspiring and different and I sort of thought, oh, I should go up to Cape York Institute. So I ended up there and I, I wrote a couple of articles on Wild Rivers, actually. The Wild Rivers controversy was playing out at the time. And then that led me into thinking about Marbo and, and I wrote another paper on Native Title. And out of the blue, um, Noel Pearson offered me this job in an area that I didn't know even existed at that time. I didn't know there was such a thing as constitutional recognition. And it's um, really become my obsession ever since. Um, have somehow ended up an, an expert in the field um, and ended up being a constitutional lawyer by accident in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and so very quickly you arrive at the Cape York Institute, still a law student, you're not let a law, yet a lawyer, you had two subjects still to run, but pretty much from the get-go, it sounds like from reading your, your book, you were involved in really serious, quite high-level discussions about how we can advance this process of constitutional recognition and and what the best strategy is. That's right. So it was a completely new area. And, you know, I remember saying to Noel, I know nothing about politics. And so one of the first things I started to learn was, well, this is not just about law. It's not just about constitutional law. This is about hardcore political It's highly charged. Absolutely. And it's not just enough to have progressives and the left on side. Changing the constitution requires a double majority referendum. You've got to have both sides. It's got to be multi-party support. So how do you get the Liberal National Party on side um, when they're traditionally conservative in matters of constitutional reform? And this is the the huge strategic question that that really shaped these seven, eight years of work. And um, yeah, I was completely thrown into the deep end and 
I've learnt a massive amount over the time <laughs> time I've worked there. Yeah, and I imagine not only those kind of leaders and, and Aboriginal leaders that whose names are household names, many, um, but also the grassroots need to be on board too. So this is also part of the juggle that that um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders all around the country need to believe and and be behind it. And that's what was so extraordinary about what Indigenous people achieved last year with the Uluru Statement from the Heart. You know, that was the first time that I'm aware of that there has ever been a national grassroots process where delegates um, were able to choose their representatives from all across the regions, all across the First Nations, to come together at Uluru and form a kind of majority national position. And it's historically significant because all the advocacy and the petitions and the letters to the kings of the past, that was all from different First Nations. You know, the Yolngu people or William Cooper down here, um, they all did their bit in advocacy over the decades. But there's never been this national consensus position. And that was what was so extraordinary and special about what they did did last year. So we're at an interesting time in the national debate in that we now know, as non-Indigenous people, you know, we now know what Indigenous people want, the majority. Um, so it puts us in a in a in a position of unique opportunity, I think. Yeah, and and I mean, right at the, the beginning, and and as these discussions around the country progress, particularly with the the um, conversations as part of what led up to the Uluru Statement and that that incredible conference at Uluru last year, if there was one, I guess, idea that was being um, spoken about by a whole range of Indigenous people across the country, it was that if we have constitutional recognition, it can't be minimalist, it can't be merely symbolic. I think most people were kind of on the same page with that. But then, what we actually achieve and what we advocate for is very difficult process and and achieving consensus on that is tough and right at the beginning of your journey you were part of a number of people I guess who had more of a let's for want of a better term say a radical idea of what we might need in the constitution to achieve that and what should be substantive including a racial non-discrimination clause how did you grapple with that tension and, and with I guess those sorts of ideas being advanced by some while trying to achieve a position that was ultimately workable and would get conservatives on side And that's what's been so fascinating about the journey is that, you know, as the book sort of tries to tell, it's this story where so many people have changed their minds over time and come around to a different point of view, including Noel Pearson and myself. So you're right. At the beginning, we were passionately advocating a racial non-discrimination clause. That's what the expert panel pushed. Um, And it's a clause that all the Liberal Democratic constitutions, similar to ours, they have that because they have a Bill of Rights. But we are constitutionally unique. We don't have a Bill of Rights. And so in Australia, there has always been quite entrenched opposition to the idea of inserting new judicially adjudicated rights clauses because people are nervous about handing power to the High Court. And that was a massive learning curve for me. I didn't fully understand that there was that level of opposition. Um, And that was, you know, one of those moments where we had to think about. And and the challenge Noel set to me was, how do we step to the right and up? And it's a chapter in in the book that talks about this. How do you address the concerns conservatives have laid out about a racial non-discrimination clause, but don't slide down to minimalism because you're absolutely right. 
all Indigenous people were in agreement pretty much that they do not want this to be just symbolic. So you can't address the conservative concerns by just letting it all filter down into nothingness, just a symbolic statement, no practical reform. It's got to be substantive. It's got to be practical. It's got to be empowering. So that's where the idea of a voice in the Constitution came from that, yes, this is empowering substantive reform, the kind of reform that Indigenous advocates have called for for decades, William Cooper, the Bark Petitions, the Barunga Statement, all calling for forms of a voice. But the crucial thing is it doesn't empower the High Court. So suddenly we saw constitutional conservatives not only coming on board with that proposal but championing the reform. So that's the other thing that's remarkable about what Uluru asked for. Uluru asked for a constitutional voice and that is a proposal that some good-hearted constitutional conservatives can support. And, and uh, as you say in the book, you were working on those con-cons, um, I think mm. is what it's you call term. them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, it did give me a giggle. We're speaking with uh, Shireen Morris. Her book, Radical Heart, is in front of us and it's um, a really personal account as well, Shireen, and you do lay out when when you admit when you, you've come back later and said, look, that was flawed, my thinking there, um, didn't consider X, Y and Z or whatever it might be. There's also, though, commentary about other people changing their mind and I wonder about... Uh, the work that you did telling people that they're in the book and conversations that maybe they didn't expect would end up in a book are in there. How did that work? Yeah, it's one of those dilemmas, isn't it? When you sit down and think, should you write the story of the last eight years? And it was Noel who laid the challenge. He sort of said, I really want you to write this book and I want you to write it honestly and from your unique personal perspective as a Fijian Indian Australian woman, which is an unusual, you know, position to be in. And it's a dilemma. Is is there any point writing a sanitised version of the story? Um, and he encouraged me strongly to just be honest and tell about all the factors, because there were a myriad of factors and not all of them were well known, about uh, the, the things that led to Turnbull's rejection, the Prime Minister's rejection of the Uluru Statement. Um, what were the factors on the right? What were the factors on the left? Um, and I guess my hope was that in telling it truthfully, maybe we do better next time. You know, we reflect on uh, the, 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 the mistakes and the, the positions we all took and um, resolve to all get behind what the First Nations have asked for here. And there's one um, statement again that, you know, did make me smile because, uh, you, you know, you write about one meeting and, and look, a lot of these meetings were very male-dominated often. Um, you write very honestly about that, but at one point you um, are asked to leave the room and or not take notes, things like this. Yeah. And then you say, ironically, I'm actually now, in the notes I didn't take, now reporting. <laughs> <laughs> so there is that honesty there about, uh, you know, that people didn't want you part of some of this change either. It, it, it was such an interesting... To be an Indian woman, I think, um, because the white male advisor is part of the furniture in Indigenous affairs, you know. Um, there are so many white constitutional lawyers um, in this scene, but sometimes in a position like mine, you find yourself being criticised by the, by the white 
experts and also criticised by some Indigenous leaders. Um, but again, it was Noel who there was a moment, I think it was around 2012, where I had a bit of a crisis of confidence and I said, Noel, I don't know if I can be doing all this advocacy fighting with George Brandis and, you know, Tony Abbott that you want me to be doing. I'm not Aboriginal. And, you know, what if you're not in the room? Stuff like that. And he said, Shireen, you're the expert at Cape York Institute. You're in charge of the policy area. And he said, you're as Australian as anyone. And, you know, this is not just a matter for the people of British descent and the Indigenous people. It, um, it is a matter for all Australians, including those of migrant backgrounds. And that's why, you know, we are passionate about the idea of the three stories make us one. Mm. And so I sort of, you know, there were so many moments where I really questioned um, whether I should continue and it's tough withstanding criticism from both sides like that sometimes. On the other hand, there's been huge, amazing support as well. And so you you go back to that and support from my organisation. I mean, I was at an Indigenous organisation um, working under the instructions of Noel and Fiona Jost, the amazing CEO there who's Indigenous and a whole lot of Indigenous leaders. So, you know, they were always backing me and I, I suppose you, you kind of have to make a choice. It's easy to stay silent and never be criticised by anybody um, and that's tempting to do. But uh, when, when these inspiring leaders who've put themselves out there so much in the firing line are asking me to do the same alongside them, well, you kind of, it's been an amazing journey. So I don't regret that decision. Yeah, and, and those personal insights and, and the details of those meetings you had with, with politicians and, and high-level kind of influential people in that space make the book all the richer, I think. It's more than just a, a document of, of what happened, but it's how you experienced it and how you felt at different times and what sort of sorts of conversations we're having. Um, but I want to talk a bit about um, politicians in this because there is, um, we alluded earlier to Abbott and Brandis and that meeting you had with them where I think a racial non-discrimination clause at that point was still being discussed. Yes. And, and Abbott says at one point... I think if I'm getting this correctly, um, oh, if we if we had that, we couldn't implement something like the Northern Territory Emergency Response. And you say, oh, well, you know, God forbid that <laughs> that yeah. that would be illegal. But also your conversations with Turnbull mm. um, early on, he suggested that he was very much open to the sorts of ideas that were eventually in the Uluru Statement and the Referendum Council's report, and intimated that he was very much on side. Then he rejected it outright once it all happened. How do, do we account for that turn and, and what do we make of that rejection now? Yeah, that part of the story is one of the most devastating parts for me because we put so much effort into engaging with the right, um, with the Liberal Party, and ensuring that we were briefing them early. And it was 2015 that we had conversations with Tony Abbott, Christian Porter and Malcolm Turnbull um, talking about this idea developed in conjunction with constitutional conservatives of a voice in the constitution, an advisory body um, entrenched in the constitution. And there were certainly along the way um, expressions of support, you know, um, Malcolm Turnbull called it a sensible proposal and he even offered to promote it in his electorate back in 2015. Um, Christian Porter, the now Attorney-General, called it an elegant solution. Um, and then, you know, and the, uh, the thing that I learnt is that um, principle gets too easily forsaken 
for the pragmatic um, regard for people's own careers and rise in the party. And, and I think that this was an example of, yeah, on the, on the level of principle, those individuals as conservatives, I think, or Malcolm Turnbull being more progressive, but, but I think intellectually they could be brought on side um, and then things started to go wrong in terms of the party dynamics and the, the uh, fractures within the party that meant that this issue and the First Nations were unfortunately forsaken. Yeah, and do you think? I mean, I mean, you you and your team worked very hard also on um, very significant commentators like Andrew Bolt and others to really get your message across. And I, I suppose that's part of this, um, making sure that you are appealing to the to the right people when it comes to change. But do you think we could have constitutional recognition or the acceptance of the Uluru Statement and and um, the the um, the the council referendum council's proposal under a, an ALP government, under a Labor government, or do you think it needs to happen when we have a coalition government? That's a really interesting strategic question, and I don't know the answer. The, the sort of the orthodox position is that it would be better if it was led by a coalition government because they're usually the ones who are in opposition. So if they can be persuaded to embrace and champion this proposal, then hopefully Labor will obviously be on side, more progressive party. They've already said they support the Uluru Statement. That would be the ideal situation. That's the kind of Nixon needs to go to China rule, that if you're trying to achieve ambitious progressive change, see if you can have a conservative leader so that you can bring 90% of the electorate along. Um, On the other hand, under a Labor government, depending on the levels of support within the Liberal Party, maybe it is possible. So I don't have a, a black and white answer um, to that question, but I think it'll be be interesting to see what what, what the levels of support are like, and, yeah. and then make a call. And we and we are seeing that process happening now in Victoria with the treaty process. That it is, uh, it, it you know that sort of legislation to enable that process to to begin. It's under the Andrews government here in Victoria. So let's see, I suppose, in that regard. Yeah, um, I mean, and that's the difference between legislative change and constitutional change is that the constitutional change needs the needs the widespread public support in a way that um, mere legislative change, you can get away with just over 50%. Um, but because of the requirement of a double majority referendum, um, strategic calculations need to be made about when and how much support is required before you can go ahead with a successful referendum. Mm. And for a while there, it sounded like we were were talking about whether we were going to have or wanted to have constitutional recognition or a treaty as if it was kind of an either-or scenario. And now we've got this process very much underway in Victoria. There's a lot of work that's already been done and a lot still yet to do to see what that might look like. But the sort of model that we had out of the Uluru Statement with the Makarada that was part of that suggests that those two processes can happen very much hand in hand. Is that your take? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're right. For a long time in the debate, I think we were held back by the idea that it had to be either or, and you were either in the treaty camp and you were like cool and ambitious and on the left, or you were kind of in the constitutional recognition camp and that was seen as being symbolic and weak. Now, I think that approach is totally flawed because really constitutional recognition should be substantive. That's what Indigenous people have always been saying Um, and there should be treaties and agreements as well and the great thing the Uluru Statement achieved was exploding that false dichotomy because they said no we want both 
You know, we want a voice in the constitution guaranteed. And, you know, the significance of that is that ATSIC got struck down because it was in mere legislation. So the constitutional guarantee is important. But strategically, what they asked for is just so wise because you need an institutional representative structure to negotiate a treaty or treaties. And that's the lesson from the Victorian process that we've just seen is that they're not um, legislating a treaty, they're legislating the voice, the First Nations voice for Victoria. Who are we going to negotiate with? Who will negotiate the treaty? So the Uluru position was really smart in that sense and completely um, aligns with what the Victorians are doing. Um, And I think that the treaty debate in the various states, you know, it shows that the fact that that initiative, those state initiatives can go ahead under a Labor state government but not a Liberal state government shows why at the federal level Indigenous people have asked for it to be constitutionally entrenched so that when the next Liberal government um, comes in, they don't abandon or defund or, you know, obliterate the voice and so that the whole process doesn't stall. It's sort of a safeguard. Yeah. And uh, Shireen Morris is with us. So we're talking about her book, Radical Heart, and um, all the things that come out of it as well. It's um, a very personal, very interesting look at, uh, I suppose, the ongoing uh, work that's been done to remedy uh, the legacy of Australia's colonial history. And uh, I wonder, you know, when you started this work, we didn't have so many uh, Aboriginal people in Parliament. We've got Linda Burney now. We've got now Senator, you know, Pat. Pat Dodson, um, Ken Wyatt. I mean, what? how significant are these people in the ongoing process? Oh, hugely significant. I mean, it's so fantastic that we've now got um, four Indigenous MPs in there and the work they're doing is really impressive and they've become such passionate, I think, um, defenders of the Uluru position. You know, each of them in their own way has called the Prime Minister out Um, Ken Wyatt said it's not a third chamber, you know, which was a very, very interesting um, moment. And I think Linda Burney said the third chamber argument that Malcolm Turnbull is pushing is a straw man, you know. Um, So so they are being very effective. Um, And I think the the argument that the Prime Minister makes around, oh, we don't need a voice because the First Nations MPs are the voice, um, is highly misleading and dishonest. You know, Patrick Dodson is a senator for Western Australia representing the Liberal Party and all Western Australians of any ethnicity, um, not just... It's Labor, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, just, um, not just Indigenous people. So I think that does a disservice to them. They're, they're um, politicians for all Australians, just like an Indian MP or a white MP or a Greek MP. Um, so I think that's a misleading argument, but I think it's fantastic and we should we should have way more cultural and ethnic diversity in Parliament. Um, I would love to see uh, parliamentary representatives better reflecting Australian society. I wonder about where to now out of this because the the Prime Minister rejected the Uluru Statement last year. Since then, of course, um, we've had 
same-sex marriage plebiscite. And I know Noel Pearson suggested that kind of diverted attention away from the momentum towards constitutional recognition for a while there. There's always talk of a republic kind of bubbles up from time to time and also Section 44 of the Constitution. At some point, presumably, we need to deal with that. Do you feel like there is still that momentum for constitutional recognition given those other factors and other considerations around what we might need a referendum for? Well, there's a joint select committee at the moment and the terms of reference include the Uluru Statement. So the Prime Minister's rejection on this is not the last word because the Uluru Statement is part of the terms of reference of this committee. The committee is chaired by Patrick Dodson, who has a huge amount of experience in this area, father of reconciliation, but the co-chair is constitutional conservative Julian Lisa, who, as you know from the book, was one of the co-designers of this voice proposal. So I think this issue is far from dead. I think the opportunity remains alive. And I think there's space now for experts and Indigenous leaders and politicians to work together to refine and develop the proposal so that it they can come up with something that is seen to address any of the concerns emanating out of the Liberal Party. So showing beyond a doubt that it's not a third chamber, showing beyond a doubt that it's not a veto. And of course, it's not. The Referendum Council made that clear. But um, and on same-sex marriage, you know, the polling uh, postal survey showed 61% support. Well, there's two sets of polling now have showed similar level of support for a First Nations voice in the Constitution. The same-sex marriage result came with the Prime Minister advocating for the change. The constitutional voice result came with the Prime Minister advocating against it. So that actually suggests that Australians are really amenable to this change, even in the face of government opposition. Um, And I think it's the responsibility of all of us to ensure that it stays on the agenda and is not swept aside because of Section 44 or a republic, I think this has to be the first issue. Like, this is way more urgent than letting politicians have easier rules, you know? So that's my view anyway. Yeah, we say that ahead of the um, Super Saturday elections (laughs) happening this Saturday. And it wouldn't be the first time that our Prime Minister has got his political instincts not exactly right. So um, uh, you're a postdoctoral fellow at Melbourne Law School now. Um, What is your uh, ongoing involvement going to be on this issue? So I'm still advising um, Cape York Institute and Noel, um, still plugging away, um, helping out wherever I can. Um, I would love to see um, Australia resolve this, you know, and I think that the, the, the real question for us is how do we come together, all Australians? I think it's wrong to leave this up to Indigenous people only. I think that's what, what led to the Prime Minister's rejection. So how do we as all Australians rally behind what Indigenous people have asked for? Um, so I'll, I'll keep pushing for that as long as I can. We've kept you too long. Thank you so much for coming into Triple R, Shireen. Shireen Morris uh, is a lawyer, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Melbourne's Law School. Um, she's an advisor to the Cape York Institute and uh, she's the author of this book, Radical Heart, Three Stories Make Us One. Uh, and people that I suppose even if you had a peripheral interest so far in this issue, I think you'll find this um, very readable and it's out through Melbourne University Press. So thank you so much for coming to Triple R. Thank you. Next up, we're going to be talking about 
theatre for children and theatre for children and young people isn't just about entertaining kids, although that's pretty fundamental. It's actually a growing and thriving part of the creative arts industry. And it's also an area that is at the forefront of change when it comes to being inclusive to performers and audiences with disabilities and also other marginalised groups. One of the trailblazers in this area is Katrina Gabb. She's worked for many years with children in theatre and she's a member of the International Inclusive Arts Network or Iron and uh, Katrina's come by. Thanks for dropping in. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. And uh, I suppose we should spell out before we talk about your trip to Cape Town recently and the workshops yep. you ran over there at this kind of mega uh, event for uh, theatre groups working with children. Um, tell us what Iron does. Sure. So um, IAN stands for International Inclusive Arts Network and it's really a network that's attached to um, a organisation called Assetage which is a, um, a, originally a um, based in France and has become an international uh, festival and um, congress for um, artists and companies working with people um, with for children. Um, my interest has always been around I- inclusion so it's for me, it's, it doesn't really matter if it's attached to work with children or with adults or whatever. I'm really interested in what ways we can proactively break down barriers for people to be able to access theatre as theatre makers and as audience. And, and you've been working in, in that space and with that kind of um, motivation, I guess, for quite a while. Yes. Has the sector become more inclusive over the past couple of decades? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was thinking that this morning, Dylan. I was thinking, God, how long have I been in this for? And it's about 25 years now. So I've certainly seen an enormous amount of change. And when I first started working in the field of sort of disability arts, there were very few uh, organisations making really interesting work that that ha- could stand on its own two feet as good art. It was really more about a kind of therapeutic approach. Of course, we had back-to-back theatre in Geelong, but that was kind of the only one in Australia, really, at that time. And then there was a whole lot of adult training support services that were creating work that was kind of, like I say, more about therapy and far less um, aware that people with disabilities have the right to take risks and be involved in the artistic process as well. Um, I went to a, an amazing thing at Footscray Community Arts Centre the other day with Jack's Jackie Brown, who's an amazing um, advocate and activist um, as a queer woman with a disability. And the two things that really, um, you know, I've been into a lot of those kind of workshops over the years. I've run them myself. But the things that really got me, I walked away with was there's language now that we didn't have at the beginning. So we talk about ableism, you know, um, discrimination against people, whatever their ability is or is not. Um, and we also talk about allies, people who are not, who don't identify as with the lived experience of disability like myself, um, but who recognise, funnily enough, like Shireen was saying about Indigenous people, it shouldn't just be left up to Indigenous people, you know, to 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 um, to join the party. It's ridiculous. It's about all of us as a, as a community becoming inclusive. And I, I feel that very strongly about the work I do. And I mean, you mentioned there about, you know, uh, theatre um, as as therapy potentially, which I'm sure there's space for that. But there's sure, also sure, yeah. professional routes, like people um, of all abilities can make it on the, the main stage when it comes to, to film or theatre around yes. the world. But also um, we need to look at our theatres and can these people get onto yes. the stages in the first place? So there's a couple of things going on there. Yes, Maybe there's a lot. Can you, can you talk about how wide this net is of, in, of inclusion when it comes to theatre particularly? Do you mean globally or in Australia? I reckon take us worldwide. Okay. <laughs> All right. So... Um, 
Uh, about five years ago, I was working as the access officer at St Martin's Youth Arts Centre, and that's, I think, when we first came in contact, Kalia. Um, and my work there was about taking a exclusive organisation, effectively, which was really just, you know, um, theatre for, for rich people's kids, and to make it into an inclusive um, space that really was welcoming and proactively uh, um, engaging people from marginalised, you know, areas. Not just areas, but, you know, backgrounds, whatever. Economic disadvantage, disability, uh, cultural disadvantage, whatever. Um, and so uh, that that was a really interesting process for me because it was really about um, implementing an organisational shift in thinking and ha- what... And, and people often talk about inclusion and it's really kind of ephemeral. It's like, oh, yeah, we welcome everybody. Everyone's, of you know, come in, come in. But it's actually not about that. It's actually about... It's like not being coloured blind. You know, you've got to look at and go, okay, what is it that why why can't you be involved in this work? And it might be because it's, there's no ramp for a wheelchair user to get in the door, but it might also just be that people do not they're so used to being discriminated against so they don't see it as for them. But when you look at theatre, what is theatre? It's about communicating our stories and you know, we want to see a broad we want to hear those voices. We want to hear we want we want Australia to be a, a polyvocal landscape of amazing theatre. Um, with people being able to see theatre, engage with theatre, but also also make make their own work, be at the centre of it. Yeah, and, and you were in Cape Town last year, I, I think, was, at the IAM yeah. conference and I think the the one coming up this year is in China. Yes, yeah, in Beijing, I, yeah. I believe. I imagine different countries have very different experiences oh, with yeah. <laughs> in- inclusivity. In the arts, what, what sort of conversations did you have in, in Cape Town with with people yes. working in in other countries around yeah. the world? Um, so I should just be clear. So um, it's not uh, so Iron International Inclusive Arts Network is a network that's attached to ACETEJ. Mm-hmm. Now ACETEJ is International Association for Theatre for Children and Young People. Um, it's quite a, it's quite an old um, association, but it's got these networks that have become attached to it, and Iron's one of those. Um, so I was in Cape Town. It was. Um, it was pretty amazing. So ACETES started very Eurocentric and now it's become very broad and it has members across Africa and our part of the world and, um, you know, China, Japan. It's it's really extremely broad. So I ran an inclusion day um, with um, another woman from Iron, from England, and she... Uh, Together, there was a, probably about 35 people in the room. A lot of them were from different parts of Africa. And we started sort of talking about um, language because everyone wants to talk about what 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 language can be used in this space that's uh, respectful and, and, and useful. But, of course, when you're speaking to a whole range of people from cult- very diverse cultural backgrounds, it's, it's incredibly... Um, well, it's, you've got to be very nimble around those conversations. But one thing that came up was um, a guy from Zimbabwe said, oh... We don't have a word for disability in our language. And we were sort of stopped in our tracks, you know. We were like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so how do you talk about disability if if there's no word for disability? Um, and then somebody else from another African country said, but um, our people who have mental health issues, well, they're raised up because the ancestors are speaking to them. So, again, there's these very different attitudes even within the continent of Africa um, around disability. So it was a really – it was really great because we were coming from a – English and Australian perspective and we really had to just sort of break it down and we had this incredible conversation that lasted about two hours with people just talking about, oh, in India, you know, there's no people with disabilities, they're not seen or they're on the street but they're never in the schools and they're never in the shops. And You know, it was really... Um, 
it was amazing. And that's what I love about this network is that we go to these artistic gatherings every year and if we influence, you know, 15 people with some ideas around inclusion, then that's going to just spread and spread and spread. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to take over the world, I tell yeah, you. Yeah, that's, that's why I introduced you as a trailblazer, Katrina Gabs with us, um, and she's been working globally and also here in Australia um, for inclusive children's theatre, but as she said um, before, that it's for, for inclusivity across age and background and socioeconomic background and the like. And the Asajet um, big conference you went to, now you did describe it to me is like Eurovision <laughs> meets EU. So there's like this big policy element. I imagine yes. it's not when I think EU, I think oh not everyone gets on. Yeah. But um but it's Eurovision true. as well. <laughs> Eurovision as well. So yeah. so it, it sounds like a pretty kind of crazy cool yeah. environment to to try and make change. So are you sort of chipping away iron at that um, to try and get this kind of uh, idea of inclusivity yes. into into these kind of, some of them quite massive theatre companies and, yes. and very profitable and very influential. Absolutely. And, and a lot of them have no idea about inclusion and have no interest in engaging with people with a disability. So it's it's very, very interesting. Um, and Asatej is around, you know, theatre for for children and young people and that's kind of really exciting because I've discovered in my work particularly at St Martin's that if you influence young artists with the with this, this happy germ I call it this happy germ of, of thinking inclusively about their work then they have potentially if they take it on they, they'll carry it throughout their practice um, but yes um, so if you imagine we're, we're based at the town hall in Cape Town where Mandela gave his first speech out of um, prison um, and you go into this massive town hall and there's all these desks, a hundred desks with people sitting behind them. There might be one, two or three people and they're representatives from a hundred different countries across the world. Um, and um, and then there's these booths with interpreting going on um, when people wearing headphones and so forth so they can hear it in their own language. It's currently run in English but it's, we're looking at changing that so it, it reflects the uh, wherever we are, the language that um, is being used in that country. Um, yeah, and so so Ian, so me there as a representative, I'm there going, every time there's a conversation, I'm there waving the inclusion flag and going, well, what about, so if we're talking about mentorships, for example, I'm saying, well, what about we make sure that there's at least three of those mentorships go to young artists with a disability? How about that? You know, <laughs> so wherever I am, I'm this sort of kind of annoying fl- you know, fly in someone's ear going, oh, well, have you thought about, you know, um, and we also there's if you look at the website at the Asatej website there's an overarching statement about what Asatej is and you'll notice that it breaks down um, that we are wanting to create work with and for um, children and then it talks about you know regardless of our cultural background, disability, um, gender, sexuality, all that stuff, that's us. We got that language in and we worked very hard to ensure that, that that's, that's up at the top there because um, I think Australia, it's really exciting. Australia's, um, you know, we're really ahead with this stuff. I mean, England's way ahead of us probably, but we have a really interesting sort of do-it-yourself kind of approach to it. And um, for some countries, you know, who really haven't considered this work at all, um, it's very exciting to be able to um, start these conversations and to support that change. Mm. And do you see that filtering through to kind of the the big players, the big theatre companies and the like? Very marginally. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I mean, it's, it, it takes yes. a long time to oh, sort of work there, doesn't it? And even I reflecting on the past couple of decades, a lot's changed. A lot has changed and I do see it slowly changing, but it's still, you know, the grassroots is where it's at, you know, that's where all the change, you know, really sort of um, happens and is, is very vibrant and, and there's a lot of it. Um, and then you sort of see it filter as you go sort of up the food chain. You, you can see it there, but it's there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, I mean, maybe and hopefully we, we see the change, you know, we, we see on our screens and I suppose that's where I can think most of it is that you'll have people pretending to have disability yes. on screen when yeah. actually there might be actors out there and there probably are that that's their role yes. you know oh, and and, that, yeah. and I suppose we've seen that change I mean we saw a lot of blackface at some point in the past which is just ghastly to think now but that has happened in the past yes. as well so we can change absolutely and we talk about you know blacking up and we talk about cripping up you know which is exactly people without a disability adopting the persona of somebody with a disability and we see it also there was a whole um, thing last week I think about um, trans people wanting to be represented properly on screen and not having people who, who don't identify in, in that community as um, playing trans people. And, and, I, and I think I was reading Scarlett Johansson gave up that role. That's right, she did. She that, did. Yeah, yeah. being called out for which is Which is new and, mm. and, and exciting, isn't it, that there's those kind of public, um, yeah, from, from stars, from people who, who will, will be listened to, you know, saying, actually, you know, I don't know if I feel that comfortable about it. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, cripping up's a thing and it's got to change. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I introduced... You this morning, Katrina, saying that that you know children's theatre is at the forefront here, but I think there's also other art forms like stand-up comedy yeah. that have have been pushing this for a long time as well. Yes, absolutely. There's there's little there's little chinks in the dark, I think, but um, I think we've we've still got a long way to go, um, and. Uh, it's you know it's it's human rights. It's everyone's right to access the, the the artistic process. It's absolutely a human right, and we we know we should be striving for that. Yes. <laughs> um, well, all power to your arm, um, Ian uh, or Ian uh, International Inclusive arts network is what katrina gab is part of and um, when i was checking out the website it looks like people can get in touch and and join this network is that sort of is that what you did you just went look that's that's me i'm gonna no actually that's i i I came in contact with it when i went to poland for one of these artistic gatherings and the congress um when i was working at st martin's that's how i became exposed to it because i sort of went along to a workshop went oh i'm 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 feeling exactly the way you're feeling let's let's talk um but there is a network and we'd love people to be in it's an online network and we only sort of meet every few years if we happen to be at the you know the same artistic gathering but it's a fantastic way if you're interested in making work that is more inclusive of people with a disability both as theatre makers and audience get in contact that would be fantastic we'd love that and uh, looking forward to catching up with you again on Triple R thanks so much for coming in thanks so much for having me uh, this has been a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.